this was for the first time real conversation. We even faked conversations to have the wording completely right because it's not like reading, it's not like scanning, it's really listening to this voice talking to you and you talking back to it. So try to make this copy as natural and as human as possible. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello, and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by UX Writing Hub. Today, I'm going to talk about a fascinating topic, which is designing voice interface. So in the last few years, we had kind of a renaissance of voice interfaces like Alexa and Google Home and the Google Assistant. And it feels like that in the future, we're going to have a lot more writers in demand to write those uh, voice interfaces. And uh, today I had the chance to speak with Eve. Eve Van Kerkhove works for Coloroid Group, which is, let's imagine that if in the States you have Walmart, so in Belgium you have Coloroid. And they have a lot of retail stores, and they had to develop an app for the Google Assistant. And in order to do that, Eve was in charge of writing the conversational interface of that product. And on the next episode, we've talked about his process of creating the voice interface. So it was fascinating. And we are starting. Eve is a UX writer at Coloroid Group. And today we're going to talk about how to design and write conversational interface and voice interfaces. Eve, welcome aboard. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Before we start talking a little bit about your process of creating a voice interface, I would love to know, I would love it if you will tell the audience a little bit about your background. I'm in the copywriting business for over 15 years now. I started uh, old school, like traditional direct marketing, e not emailing, no internet, just purely offline, direct marketing, selling products uh, through uh, post order and stuff. I was part of a Reader's Digest. It's an American company, uh, publisher of books and music, uh, well famous for their uh, direct marketing uh, techniques. We used the yes and a no envelope. It was the first A-B testing kind of way uh, to promote our our different concepts because we always tested several uh, uh, selling approaches. What's a yes and a no envelope? You could participate in sweepstakes and contests back at the time. It was to promote selling the books and the, the music products. And so we had people ordering a book. There was a yes envelope and the no envelope was, was just uh, participating in the sweepstakes and the contests. We tested, we kept on uh, trying new techniques and new concepts. We had an idea of how many people responded, ordered, etc. So uh, it was kind of the, the early uh, um, A-B testing technique we used later on, on on emailing. They received a book and then they got envelope with a yes or no and they had to send back their answer? They had to send back their participation document and that was a way we could measure. We, we knew we sent out, uh, I don't know, uh, 50,000 or 100,000 mailings, physical mailings, and then we got back, you know, like uh, seven, eight percent uh, yeses and, uh, and 12, 13 percent noes. But we, we measured everything we wrote and we sent out. 
that was way back, way back in the time. So that's super interesting. You know, we, we <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, now we now we're uh, sending emails by a million or something, and we immediately uh, we see the, the open rate, uh, we see the click through rate. These are different times, and these are fun times as well. I wonder. It's probably very exciting to get uh, those mails back. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like a surprise yeah. in your inbox. Yeah. Your physical <laughs> inbox. It was a big inbox at the, at the post company. What happened since the, the physical A-B test uh, 15 years ago? So I've, I've been evolving as well. So I wrote more and more for, for digital products. I started writing websites, emails, conversational emails. Uh, I had um, conversion emails, trying to sell products. So now I've been working for the last six years for Conrad Group as a direct mail, email, conversation, conversion specialist. And I've been, uh, I've been involving to a point where, like last year, I joined the UX UI team as a UX writer, which is like a very logical evolution to my digital background. Because I was writing more and more for apps. I was writing more and more for our e-commerce brands. I was writing more and more for company websites as well. Now I'm part of the UX team as, a, as the only uh, Dutch uh, UX writer. Mm-hmm. So before we're going to dive into your uh, UX writing process, I want to focus a little bit on the transition that you had from a senior copywriter of direct marketing uh, for Colroyd Group to a UX writer? Because I know that there are many listeners right now that just like you, they have traditional background in content marketing or content writing, and they are very curious about how to do this transition. So I would love it if you will tell about your own transition. I've been writing before, as you said, mainly content for the websites. We've been doing a lot of branding and image campaigns. I work for a retail company. It may be important to, to stress that part. Um, it's a group of, of different brands. It, uh, the biggest one is Colgate, it's food retail. But we also have non-food retail. We have a, a baby store for young kids. We have a toy store, it's called Dreamland. We have a gasoline uh, company selling gas, uh, petrol, all over the country. So it's a big group. And I've been writing content for, for a lot of those brands. And the maturity of the, the organization, when you're trying to make the step from a traditional content writer to a UX writer, is very important. Because I think when, when, when your company, whether it's big or small, understands the importance of a UX user experience in everything they do and everything they design, whether it's an app or a physical product, um, I think you can, um, you can try to, to persuade your, your boss or the marketing people you work with uh, of the importance of everything that is copy in, in the UX process. Mm-hmm. And you can do that by stalking them with the Medium articles. You can do it yourself by promoting or writing your copy as, as clear, as concise, as logical as possible so they they really understand the advantage and and the the value of ux writing it helps when you're starting off with uh, i still remember when we 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 started with our first uh, application mobile app the management started to to realize little by little how important the copy was in the process so we had all those designs and stuff those wireframes those designs they just don't work with 
without the, the proper copy. And so that's why they understood, luckily for me uh, and within the group, that there was a, a clear need for a UX writer. Because it's normal, it's, it's like the plan you, you receive from, from an architect for a house. It's sometimes very difficult to imagine how the house is going to look like. So it's the same with, with UX copy, I think. So if you present or pitch a wireframe or even a design, certainly design, to the marketing people you're working for, it's very important and very useful that you have the, the right copy right from the start, like in the wireframes. So there's no uncertainty about the user flows or that there's no difficulty with understanding the, the navigation or the, the sitemap structure of whatever you're building. Luckily, we've seen a lot of people happy with, uh, with the fact that there is a UX writer now within the UX team and it helps us to get approval of, of our designs in a very fast and efficient way. Because it happened before that designers were writing like not even Lorem Ipsum copy themselves, but their own copy, like they know very well, like a developer writing copy, knowing very well how a system works. But it's very technical language. It's not user-friendly, so that's where we come in. We try to keep the user in mind. How do you make your copy user-friendly? I try to make it as human as possible. It's always dangerous when you're knee-deep in a project that you're using words or, or phrasing that is technical or parts. That's one tip you taught me in the, in the course I followed at the UX Writing Hub. Mm -hmm. the, the conversation mining, it's pure gold, it's liquid gold when, for, when you're writing a UX copy. Because if you, you start browsing uh, user forums, uh, Facebook pages, the questions people ask on the website on Amazon.com or whatever, the kind of uh, language they use, it gives you an idea of how they, they phrase their questions, how they phrase uh, certain words. So I try to make it as human as human as possible so that everyone can understand what, what you're saying. So it's, it's always a very important exercise. User testing is a very, very, very important part of it as well. If you're not sure whether a term or a word is absolutely clear for everyone, start asking around. It, it can be uh, either you do it, if it's possible, you create a, a questionnaire online, or you just uh, you gather five to ten people even that don't have any link to the project you're working on, and you start telling open questions and you'll get some insights whether uh, a term or the wording uh, phrasing you use is clear to them as well. Mm -hmm. This is interesting. And when you test the copy on someone that don't know anything about the project, so do you give them background about the project or you just lead them straight to your interface? We try to keep the background as low as possible. So we just say, yeah, it's a website or an app for, um, for a food retailer. We don't even mention the word Colgate often when we're talking to, uh, to external people. And we try to, to, to give them some, some user tasks that are very open. That's how we learn. For example, um, we're giving them the, the user task. Uh, try to find it some more information about meat products. How would you go? And then we, we have like this basic site navigation. If a user in this simple user test doesn't find it immediately, then you have a problem. Might be sitemap or navigational, but very often it's the words you use to describe something. 
And sometimes it's very difficult to stick a word or term to a, a menu item, but you try to get as close as, go, close as possible. When you zoom out of the process and you have your task flow in front of you, the best consistency that I see in interfaces is when the button that I click, so the text, the microcopy, gives me a very clear understanding of what's going to be the next screen. That's magic if, if you find the right words, the right microcopy for, for whatever, whatever it covers, it's success. Let me just add one more thing because Belgium is... Um, we speak, uh, there are three official languages, but we use mainly Dutch and French. So we have to make sure that our designs and our navigation is perfect for both languages because French usually is like 20 to 30% longer in the number of characters. So to say the exact same thing. So we have a part of our, uh, of our site that is called in Dutch Klanten Services. Um, it's Danish uh, characters. But in French, it's uh, three words to say the exact same thing. It's service au client. So it's much longer. So we always also, in UX copywriting for this bilingual situation we're in in this country, it makes it even, uh, even more challenging. So this is a very particular situation because you try to stick to the same designs and the same interface when using Dutch or French language. Wow, I feel like this is a, a crazy challenge. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it is, sometimes it is. The advantage of me being part of the UX team is that in a very, very early stage, we're testing the difference between Dutch and French. When I see that even on the smallest screen that the copy in Dutch is like kind of uh, full or that I'm uh, nearing the limits of the number of characters, I always test in French as well. So I... I ask a French native French copywriter to try and uh, translate it to French to have an idea of what it's going to look like in French. And very often we have to uh, reiterate the, the, the design process in order to, to, to get both languages fixed at the same time. Do you have a tool to A-B test the content in your website? Yeah, but I'm not part of the analysis team, so I don't know which tool we are using right now. The company that you are working, the Colorate Group, they are, I would say, a Belgian supermarket retail, right? Yeah, yeah it's Belgium's biggest retail market. Biggest retail. So if I would compare it to something in America, it would be Walmart? Yeah, something like that, but we're in an 11 million people market, so <laughs> the market size is kind of different. But of we, course, are, we, are the market, we are the market leader, yeah. That's really cool. They just had a press release that you released the test voice recorded the shopping list? Yeah, it's a beta test. So what's that exactly? It's a voice command test we've been doing together with, with Google. But since Google hasn't released a, a Belgium version of the Google Assistant, Colright decided to launch this beta test in order to try and have an idea of if the Google Assistant and the, the Colright voice assistant action on Google Assistant is helping our customers to, to prepare their, their grocery shopping. So that was the idea. So basically, because Google Assistant is not available right now in Belgium, by the way, it's not Correct. available in Israel as well. Uh, you took something called the API, I assume, right? Yeah. So uh, I, will, uh, I will say to the listeners that API means that you can take an open source technology and uh, use that technology and develop on top of that your products. 
That means that Google open source the technologies for the Google Assistant to allow companies like Coloroid to develop technologies on top of it so they could use it for their own need. What they did is uh, what Coloroid Group and the Eve was doing is creating a specific app for the Google Assistant that helps you with your uh, grocery lists. Is that correct? Completely correct. And I've Googled it. It's an application programming interface an API. Nice. Thank you for that. That's great. And thank God for open source technologies. It allows us to do some crazy, crazy uh, stuff. I was just looking on the Google I.O. 2019 um, uh, conference videos, and I've seen one really interesting about uh, conversation design and how everyone, every developer can take the actions that Google released. And it's not that complicated to design. The experience is complicated. It's quite easy technology, I think. Mm -hmm. Because it's open source, you don't have to have a PhD in math right now in order to create this technology like we had to 20 years ago. You can just call with a single line of command to that technology and just design the app as you wish. So I think that in the future, we will see much more designers creating those technologies based on the, on the simplification of the technology. Yeah, correct. Yes, so yeah, I started to say about Google I.O. 2019, so I saw this talk, I will add it to the show notes, and uh, they just showed how a designer, sorry, how a writer work with a developer, and together they have to think about crazy use cases for conversation design that they would never think about if they didn't have the technology. So I would like to hear about, let's say that I registered to the application that you just released. So what should I expect? Well, you can just start composing your grocery shopping list uh, by using your voice, whether it's in the car, whether you're in the kitchen and you open the cupboard and you discover that you just ran out of something. You can take your phone or activate your Google Home at the, at the table, you say, uh, hey, uh, start talking to Colgate and add sugar. And that's it. So you continue adding all your products to the Google Assistant. And when you end the conversation, it's all in one list that you can synchronize. And that's the, the beauty of, of this uh, technology. We have synchronized the Colgate action on Google Assistant to the My Colgate app on your phone. So everything you've been asking Google Assistant or telling Google Assistant to add to your list in the app, you can precise the number of pieces. You can change the brand. If you just ask milk, you can uh, select the brand. But if you're a regular customer to Colgate, even uh, suggests the brand or, or the type of product that you buy most often. So it's linked to your customer or acquisition history. And in the end, you have a, a, a nice and clean shopping list that you can either send to the online shopping service through the app or that you can use when doing uh, the grocery shopping yourself. Uh, That's the principle. All right. I think it's pretty simple. It's clear, that's for sure. Okay, and when it's on my list, it means that it's going to be on my in my doorstep in a few hours or days or weeks? Or it means that I need to pick it up uh, manually? You have to pick it up manually. We don't, Colgate doesn't do home delivery. That's part of a, a very conscious choice that we, uh, for now, uh, we don't want to send more, even more, um, 
trucks on the roads or even more traffic and more pollution, etc. So we, we have a lot of collecting points um, all over the country. So basically people come and pick their, their, their grocery shopping products. They, they come and pick it up at one of the pickup points or they do the, uh, the shopping themselves based on this, uh, this list in the app. You can filter your, your, your app in the list based on the, the organization of your own physical store. So the, your, your application follows the order, the walking order in the store. So it's all about efficiency and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you have to pick it up in a few hours or, or you, in the app you can uh, schedule your uh, deliveries? You can schedule. You can schedule. You pick, you pick your own uh, scheduling. You pick your own day. That's cool. And can you schedule it with your uh, voice? No, not yet. No, no that, that's not possible through the voice uh, interaction flows. So you have to pass the, what, what Google uh, Assistant does for now is to make a complete list of all your grocery items. But if you want to send it to the online shopping service, you have to use the MicroWrite app. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, I think, I feel like in the future, a lot of people told me a few years ago that uh, uh, when I was uh, telling my parents that I'm going to be a graphic designer, they told me that in the future, that there isn't a future for graphic design. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, like I, I was thinking, all right, so so the future is going to be the voice interface and not the graphical interface. I didn't have a clue, but then I thought to myself, you know, I think that in the future, and I still think like that, you would have to have UI interfaces like graphical interfaces and voice interfaces, and they should uh, complement each other in some way. Yeah, it's 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 a combination of both, right? And I think. Voice technology is still learning. For example, when I use Siri on my uh, iPhone, it doesn't always understand perfectly what I say or ask. So I think we're still we're still learning and developing. I think like five years from now, it's gonna be we're gonna have make made a huge step forward in in in, in speech and and language technology. Right, right. But what I think is that also five years from now, even if we're going to have and you know what. I'm sure in 100% we're going to have advanced voice interface technologies because, you know, you've built an app like that. And it, it sounds like uh, once it's going to work, everyone are going to use it. But I also feel that uh, you will still have to some kind de- design an experience with something visual because we are visual creatures. And you know what? I don't think there is a future without apps like uh, Instagram. Because on Instagram, you can visually see stuff. So the voice interface, I don't think it's going to replace completely. No, it's going to be complementary. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you, you can see it in, in the type of question people ask. The, it's a lot of questions about the weather. It's, it's about streaming music. Uh, it's about setting the alarm or re- set a reminder, add something to calendar. And that's the major type of question people ask to, to this voice uh, assistant device they have either on their phone or in their house. Uh, so it's not, it's not the kind of deep research when trying to, to buy a car and you're looking for the, the specifications of a product or something. I don't think you're going you're, you're gonna to order a television, uh, a new smart TV, 
by voice. Right. But I think, let's say, okay, let's imagine, let's imagine for a second that Firewall is from now. Not only voice interface is going to be crazy good, but also AR. Uh, augmented reality is going to be developed we have we will have i don't know maybe glasses or contact lenses or something that uh, or even projectors and they will be connected to our voice interface and then we will we will be like hey google i want to buy a tv and then it will just present you different tvs in your living room and then you can just pick the one that you like the most out of those true i've i've seen amazing tests with with um uh, sneakers uh, store, online store, testing with, with augmented reality. And so you, when you're, you were filming your, your shoes or your feet, mm-hmm. they simulated all the different types of sneakers and all the models on your own feet. So it was amazing. Right. And I, I think I've seen that. Anyway. And I've seen another one with also uh, with hairstyles as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but for clothes and, 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 and designs, ah. it's, it's a great tool, augmented reality. Oh my God, the future is going to be exciting. Super exciting. One of the greatest challenges that uh, they were talking about in the Google I.O. talk was the effect about returning users, which means that if I'm coming to the interface right now uh, for the first time, so the app would have to introduce itself, but then the, the app yeah. would have to learn me and then maybe refer me in my personal name or ask me questions based on previous data, like Netflix show me right now, based on the shows that I watched previously, what I would probably like. So the best user experience is like from a product that remembers you. So how did you tackle that challenge? Yeah, that was something we tackled in copy. And the tone of voice was a very important challenge for this project. It's clear because it was like the first time that realized that people were going to talk to a brand, not a spokesman or, or someone in store, but the brand itself, you know. So we have been working a lot on the tone of voice. We have been having a, a close look at our brand personality and the characteristics of the brand as we've designed it. So that was the first challenge to have an idea of how the school that sounds. If it was a person, who would it be, right? Yeah, would it be, uh, would you be friendly, uh, uh, patient? That kind of question. Corret is known for its sympathetic uh, people in the stores. We're very helpful. So we had to sound uh, helpful and we had to be helpful in, in the phrasing as well. That was a very, very important part of the of the user experience in the voice interface. To answer your question, when people were returning to the action to add other products or maybe to remove an item they didn't need anymore, we had to be very much in line with our brand personality and the the tone of voice we have been designing before. To give you an example of this specific uh, challenge, it's very easy when when you're being uh, affirmative in uh, voice copy. So... uh, understood uh, when when um, Goret is, is replying to a request to add oranges and we say for example okay we've added your oranges something else so that's an affirmative kind of answer but imagine that a user is trying to add a product and either AI can find it or it's not a, on our list or he doesn't pronounce it properly you can say uh, 
when you're asking to repeat it, you can say, for example, the first time, uh, can you please repeat that? And then the user tries a second time. Um, yeah, you have to, to ask him to repeat it again. So it's going to be something like, oh, oh, sorry, I didn't understand it. Could you repeat it clearly? Yeah, so you have like a different, uh, a different tone already. And the third time, you can imagine the, the friction and the frustration for a user when your voice assistant still didn't understand it. Then you have to say something like, sorry, I, I, I still didn't understand. Please try adding a, a different product or something, or saying something, this, uh, I'm still learning, uh, we're still... That was a big challenge for, for us as a design interface of the voice flows, but certainly for me as a UX writer. Mm -hmm. This is super interesting. I could imagine how frustrated you can be. Yeah. I think once don't get me for the first time, I, I would be like, okay, I don't want to use it anymore. Oh, voilà. Right? That's a very, very, very important aspect mm -hmm. of the voice interface experience. You said something and I want to go back a little bit about the difficulties of creating the character and the voice and tone of the brand. Because now we don't have service people, we have the brand itself and the brand, you need to speak with the brand. And, and you told me about different kinds of, that it was challenging. So first of all, I would like to know, did you had special exercises to define the voice and tone? And the second question is, how do you document voice and tone for voice interface? Is there something special or something unique than regular voice and tone documentation? It's comparable. The first steps of the process are comparable. Luckily, I, I work for a big, big company. So we have, our, we have a very clear brand pyramid explaining who we are, what we are, where we come from, what's our mission, what's our values, etc. But we also develop the tone of voice in this kind of exercise. We have this typical uh, methodology in which we try to define, for example, we are positive. That's one part of our personality. And we try to define precisely what it means to us, positive, because it's an open term. Maybe if I say positive, it's not the same meaning for you as it is to me. So we tried to define positive by this three columns exercise. The column in the middle is positive, what it means for Kohlreit. The column to the left is too less positive, And the column to the right is too much Positive is like not even a credential anymore. Like Being ridiculously positive. Yeah, yeah, ridiculously friendly as, as if you're on a high or something. <laughs> like that person that's trying to please everyone, right? Yeah, right. Nobody likes those. It's not authentic or real anymore mm -hmm. in, in that way. So that's one part of the exercise. But then specifically for this voice command, we focused on conversational language. It's very important in all kinds of UX writing, even when you're writing, as you know very well, for a website or an application. But this was for the first time real conversation. We even faked conversations to have the wording completely right because it's not like reading it's not like scanning it's really listening to this voice talking to you and you talking back to so try to make this copy as natural and as human as possible even using like conversation stoppers and like the uh or oh, oh wait like those kind of little words that made this conversation more real and more human interesting you also see it online, but it's even more and more and more present. And it's a you know, you have those nuances that you just can't write them. 
yeah. Mm, oh. Just like, mm, uh, uh. Yeah, I remember in the Google I.O. 2018, you had this Google Assistant on stage that book your hairdresser or restaurant appointment. Yeah. And when you listen to them speak, it's like there's a lot of those. And this was the first thing that caught my ear. Yeah, that was amazing when I first heard that one. Cool. So I would love to know about, first of all, about the process of creating that interface. How was the collaboration with the designers and the developers? What was the ratio between the developers and writers and designers? So I would love to know about the process, but also about organizational structure that you had. So we had a product owner, then we had three developers, if I'm right, and one researcher. I think I want just me as a UX writer, and then we also had a French copywriter that is helping me out. Uh, it's a, a very good copywriter within the company as well. No visual designer. No visual designer because it's not a visual interface. So that was different as well. For the first time, we had nobody of our own UI team to help us create the designs for this kind of project. So it's a different way of working. It's like reshaping the way that product team works today. It is. It was try and error, you know. Yeah. Maybe my mom was right after all. <laughs> In the end, there's always a need for designers because we had to promote, and this is now anticipating a little, but we had to promote the beta test. And we had to explain to people how Google Assistant worked and how you had to link it to your Coret app. So that was all on our website and that was all part of a parallax uh, that I'll send you uh, right yeah. away so you can show it as well. We needed to educate people because this speech technology isn't very widely spread in Belgium for mm -hmm. now. We only have like the, these very early adapters using speech technology. I'm sure that my grandmother couldn't create integration between an app and Google. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> she would probably ask what's integration. But yeah, one day those integrations would be automatic, I assume, or maybe we will just, the learning curve will be simpler for us. Yeah. Okay, so the organizational structure. We had three developers, one UX writer, one researcher, and one uh, French translator, French copywriter. Yep. So tell me more about uh, the process. So first of all, we had to design these dialogue flows it was very important to have them based on what we call customer intent. So it was you and the researcher doing it together? Yeah, and partly developer as well, so we could see where, where it would all lead to. So with the intent, we mean the, the request or the intention, the command of a user. So we tried to determine all the different kind of intent a user could have when he's having this or executing this voice command. So you can have an uh, open the action as an intent, uh, a second intent, add a product. Another one is remove a product. We also have this fallback intent, which is a very important one and uh, help. And fallback is like an L, right? Yeah, true. Once we had determined all those kind of intents, we started creating user flows. I'll send you one so dialogue. We've called it uh, dialogue flows. For the listeners that are listening to us, what is the graphical way that you decided to present those flows? I use, I've used a real-time board for that. Got it. So we're seeing like you can create a real-time board or whimsical. Whimsical is, is, is also good for that. Mm -hmm. And those tools can help you to create those kind of uh, task flows, user flows. So this is the tool that you use to do those uh, dialogue flows. I know people that are still using uh, Axure these days. Yeah, you can use Axure as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't use it. I find it a bit complicated. Mm -hmm. But definitely Whimsical real-time board is 
Yeah, whimsical is, is, is one you've told me in the course as well, and I still use it because it's very user-friendly. And uh, Right. We're also doing like a free course for the people that took the UX Writing Hub course. The design tools for writers, and then we're talking about Whimsical and Figma and all of those. So, uh, All right, I'm seeing here the test flow, and after you created the dialog boxes, you shared it with the developers, everybody were aligned to those scenarios. Yep, and then we started building. Wow, started building. I'm seeing here a huge tree. Yeah, this is a huge tree, yeah. And a lot of testing too, right? Because... Yeah, true, yeah. And we also, we tested directly in the, with the Google Assistant technology to see if it worked. Also, a very important aspect for the development of this project was to have a list of the grocery items you could add to your shopping list. I think we didn't include all the references because it's a very, very long list. We had a limited list of the most popular products that had been ordered in our line service. So that gave us an idea of this tech-savvy user that was gonna, probably going to be the first adapters of this new technology. So in combination with this dialogue flow, product lists, and then another challenge for me as a UX writer was to create a list of all possible containers for any kind of product. So because it's food retail, by container I mean a box of chocolate, uh, a bottle of wine, a bag of oranges, a six-pack of beer, a kilo, a liter, plus possible variations for these containers. We were 100% sure that voice technology was able to understand if a, a user said, I call that, I want to add three boxes of rice to my list. That was possible. And we had to do it both in Dutch and French as well. It feels like this is a very intensive work for a single writer. Yeah, it was, but we had done this project uh, in summer 2018, and we've been working, I think, for two or three months on it. So there was time. Initially, we, we were preparing for the launch of Google Assistant in Belgium to have our action ready, but Google has been postponing the launch in Belgium. That's the reason why we ended with this beta test release so basically, we're ready to have it roll out for whenever Google is ready to launch it in Belgium. So do you think in the future, more companies are going to build their own apps on top of the Google Assistant? Or that if the Assistant was available in your country, do you think you would just only build the actions or both? I think both. It depends on, I think it's going to depend on, on the device or the platform as well, because Google has its Google Home and its Google Assistant technology. You have Siri on the iPhone, and then you have the Amazon Echo as well. And it's all different technologies. It's all different technologies, but you can develop in those three technology. It's the same as you're developing, whether for uh, Apple or for uh, Android, iOS or Android technology, you can, as a, as a brand, you can develop your speech action for all three platforms. And that might be, I think, a very interesting evolution for speech technology. Nice. I love how you compared it to iOS and Android. It's like, so we're going to have apps and just going to have different kind of development for each service. That's, that's so cool. Anyway, I just want to say that initially I thought maybe because Google have the assistant, so they're going to take over and control everything. 
Possibly, yeah. right? Because maybe they can say we're developing our own delivery app. Who knows what would happen? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. In case our listeners uh, want to reach out and talk with you about your process and ask you some questions, is there a way to find you online? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. So we'll add a link to your LinkedIn account. Yeah, I'll also be at the meetup talk about UX writing that you are organizing. Right. On 4th of July, uh, we're having a meetup in Amsterdam and it's going to be super fun. We're going to have their speakers from really cool copywriting agency and they also speakers from booking.com and I will also talk a little bit about things that related to the UX Writing Hub course and what we've learned and I'm going to meet you there for the first time and that's going to be exciting. Cool. Looking forward to that. Me too, me too, man. So thank you so much. Thank you. And have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. That's it for today for Writers in Tech and before you leave me forever I want to ask you a question. So, by episode 100 of Writers in Tech, I want to interview Elon Musk about the future of writers in tech and voice interface design. And in order to do that, I need you. So, what I want you to do is to share this podcast with the world and tag Elon Musk if you can. And also you can add an hashtag, come on Elon. And hopefully one day I will have the opportunity to interview Elon Musk just for you. And that's about it. See you next time. Till then, have a great week. Thank you for listening to Writers in Tech. If you like our podcast, then leave us a rating and subscribe so you're updated when a new show comes out. For more UX writing goodies, sign up for our UX writing newsletter at uxwritinghub.com. Thanks again, and that's all for this week.